Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of the Providence Journal's College Basketball Podcast. This is Bill Koch in our downtown studios. I'm a sports writer with the Journal. I am joined by my co-conspirator, Nick Coit, the sports director at ABC6, and the weekend co-host of Cordishi and Coit on WEI Radio. Coity, how we living? Hello, Bill. What's going on? Uh, we're freezing. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a chilly one out there. Uh, we're we're recording this on a Friday afternoon. Uh, for folks who who haven't picked up on this yet, uh, Coity's previous stop was in Bangor, Maine, uh, so he feels right at home uh, as it relates to his last job. I don't quite have the thick skin that I used to for the cold weather. When I first left Bangor, Bill, I came home and it would be like a cold day, just like this, and you know my family would be like, "Oh, it's really cold outside." I'm like, "You know nothing." <laughs> John right. Snow like that it was it, living up there during the middle of winter December January you're used to zero degrees and then if it gets windy at all or anything like that outside oh boy bundle up and we were thinking too it's funny Ian Steele and I were talking in the office about the Super Bowl a few years ago in Minnesota that's oh, right. something else that it, we were reminded of with this kind of cold weather right now that was a, a brutal one uh, we hope everybody is is warm and uh, perhaps enjoying a, a cup of cocoa or something a little stronger uh, as you listen to us uh, Coyte wanted to start it off with, with a little breaking news here on Friday uh, comes with the resignation of Brown Athletic Director Jack Hayes uh, he will step down as of March 1st uh, he's the 17th Director of Athletics at Brown uh, had been there since April 2012, um, had overseen a, a significant period of growth in, in that program's history, uh, and as we apply it to college basketball, uh, he was the person who hired Mike Martin, um, you know, Mike Martin, the men's coach at Brown, uh, the Brown alum, uh, who's the Ivy League coach of the year in 2019. Uh, if the Bears had a chance to play this season, you and I both feel that uh, they would have had a, a really good opportunity to qualify for the Ivy League tournament. Uh, obviously, the conference decided not to sponsor winter sports uh, due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, you know, but Coity, you know, something like this happens and people see the press release and, and they might be you know, inclined to sort of dismiss it and just think that administration will continue on as they normally do. Um, but you and I working a little closer to the sports world and, and having relationships with not only with Jack, but with coaches involved. This is, it's uh, significant news. It's significant because I think he's very well respected over there. Uh, and and I, I like Jack a lot in my interactions with him. Um, you know, very appreciative of the opportunity that I've had with, with Brown Athletics to uh, call some of the football and, and basketball games the last couple of seasons. Um, and so I've interacted with Jack a lot. Um, he's a family man, um, you know, and, and you see that with he brings his kids out to a lot of events, which is great. Um, and you're right, Bill, you, you look at the numbers and you say, OK, well, you know, the last few years, Brown is looking for more success when it comes to Ivy League titles and whatnot. But I think the lasting legacy is is a lot of times it's it's hires and, and some of the success that that came along with with your tenure. And so you know, hiring Mike Martin, I think that was a major move. And we've seen how this basketball program competes year in and year out. Hiring James Perry to lead the football program and another prominent alum, you know, was an Ivy League player of the year as a quarterback under Phil Estes, the previous coach. Right. And to me too, I think one of the 
the big achievements and one of the great times for Brown Athletics during Jack's time as athletic director was when the men's lacrosse team went to the Final Four. Uh, and, and that was what a, what a successful run that was. Dylan Malloy was the best player in the country. Right. Um, and you competed into overtime with Maryland. Um, you're talking about competing with some of the best programs in the country. So, um, you know, it's, it's sad because, again, Jack is well-respected over there. He's a good guy. Um, and a guy that's worked in athletics for a long time, too. Very experienced. So sad to see him go. Um, but obviously Brown felt like they, they wanted to, to make a change. And, you know, here we are. Uh, yeah, Jack, we'll, we'll move into private business with Bruin Sports Capital. Uh, it's a private equity firm based in New York. Uh, read their website a little earlier this morning. I couldn't tell you what they do uh, because it is a little over my head. <laughs> I, I will admit that uh, I'm not the best when it comes to economics or, or marketing or whatever it may be. Um, I tell stories. I, I don't necessarily, uh, you know, craft them in, in that way. Um, you know, I would say just in when you look at Jack's tenure uh, in totality, Brown's raised $50 million uh, while he's been there. They've renovated the lacrosse and, and soccer stadium. Uh, they've made renovations to the Pizzatola Center. They opened Coleman Aquatic Center. Um, you know, they've made renovations at Brown Stadium in the football office suites and, and whatever else. Um, did a lot of good, no question. Absolutely. Uh, you know, people are going to look at the last year which was a difficult one. Uh, in May, they announced they're going to cut 11 varsity sports. Uh, there was a huge uproar, pushback against that. Uh, a Title IX lawsuit filed that was ultimately settled in September. Um, you know, I spoke with Jack earlier today, and, and I said to him that none of us get into athletics to go into court. He doesn't get there to testify. I don't get into this to cover court proceedings. I want to watch games and 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 talk about people, um, you know. And so that's maybe a little bit of a sour note at the end of what was, on the whole, a, a good run for him uh, at Brown. He he's a Rhode Island native and East Greenwich guy. He played lacrosse at Providence. He he's been in college athletics since the late 1980s when he was a student athlete himself. Uh, so this is a, a significant change for him and a significant change for the school. Uh, you know, we wish Colin Sullivan the best. He is the deputy director of athletics. He will take over in an interim capacity. You won't meet too many nicer people than Absolutely. Colin Sullivan. Yep. Um, and, and they will begin a, a national search uh, immediately. Cody, I would expect, I expect sports to be played in the fall. With some manner of attendance, whether it's part, full, whatever it may be, I think we're going to be largely back uh, on schedule in the fall. And, and so I would expect Brown to start acting on this maybe you know late spring, early summer, when they get a better idea of what their finances are going to be and, and what their schedules are going to look like uh, for the 21-22 academic year um i get the feeling that, that that's probably when they're going to start to move um you know just generally your your thoughts on where they go well i i would agree with you i i certainly hope that there would be there would be a sense of urgency to get things together for the fall um especially because you've already gone a year without football uh and so <laughs> and i i honestly don't expect the the spring sports for the Ivy League to you know I, I don't think have we heard anything official because I don't think no. we have no um, but I I don't expect them they may play 
I don't expect spring sports for the Ivy League. I, I don't. I, I don't think we're at that point quite yet. Um, and certainly, if there was ever a chance that football would be played in the spring, uh, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, you know, hey, I'd love to be. I'd love to be pleasantly surprised and something like that happened. But I'm realistic in the way that the Ivy League is handled you know, this year. I just that's my expectation. But to go a second year without football. I, I don't think that's going to happen, um, yeah. and I think there'll be a push. And hopefully by September, we are at a point where, you know, we're in. We're about to turn the calendar to February now. You hope that they're about to go into a next stage of vaccinations with people, you know, in some states 65, some states 75 or older, you know, whatever that may be. You're moving into different phases of vaccinations. Um, There's more companies that are starting to get their final results with vaccinations. I don't want to get too technical with vaccines, but just the point is by September, you would hope that a lot of different groups and a lot of different people have had the shots in the arm and that we're starting to or at least have this thing you know, sort of under control. But it's, it is tough to say because in this pandemic, it's been so unpredictable, you don't know. But I would expect wherever we are, the Ivy League, to make some sort of push to, to get back out there because to have these athletes go two years without playing, I, I just don't see it. I, I tend to agree. Um, I, I think that you know, we will see fall sports in the Ivy League. Uh, I think football is, is big for them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I agree. That's, that's certainly football, the two basketballs, um, those are the most visible sports uh, in the Ivy League. You, you could also, you know, you could go over to something like crew, which you're very good at, rugby, very good at, uh, lacrosse, very good at as well. Um, but maybe not necessarily the visibility that Harvard and Yale playing football would have. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and, and you look at what their programs have done recently in the men's NCAA tournament with Yale and Harvard both having significant success. Um, you know, I would think that, that it's going to be important for them to be in a position where they can start over uh, going into next year. And I think Brown would probably follow, you know, some sort of timeline. Uh, along with the league, um, yeah. you know. So we wish Jack the best. Um, <clears throat> he is uh, he is a good man. I know we both like him uh, personally. Yeah, me too. Yeah, um, he's, he's great. And uh, you know, we'll we'll be talking a little bit more about that uh, in the upcoming days. I'm I'm sure you'll have that uh, you know on ABC six, and and I will certainly have that uh, in the pages of the Providence Journal. Um, Coity, let's shift gears to, to the teams who are playing um, because we do have a, a busy stretch coming up here uh, for Providence, URI, and Bryant. We'll start with the Friars uh, because I, I think uh, you know the Friars probably played the, the more exciting game on Wednesday. Uh, I won't necessarily say it was the better game because parts of it were ugly. Um, first half. <laughs> you're, you're looking at a, at a first half where there weren't 45 combined points. Um, you know, but you look at what Providence did uh, in a game that really they needed to have uh, if they're looking at playing in March. Uh, 72-63 overtime win against Marquette at home. Uh, a game that was tied at 59 at the end of regulation really was, you know, if you go back to the old MTV days, it was like the old celebrity death match, uh, you know, where, where both teams were just <laughs> punching each other and there were body parts coming off and, and there was claymation going on at, at Alumni Hall. Uh, you know, at, at times it was unwatchable. Um, you know, but you, you could see just how hard Providence was playing, how desperate they were to win this game to secure a season split with Marquette. Um, you know, you saw a, a great effort by David Duke. 
um, you know, who had had a couple games, you know, two or three game stretch where he'd struggled from the field. He was back to the player who he has been for the most part of the season. Uh, and you saw enough key contributions the rest of the way for Providence to get over the line. Uh, you know, I thought it was a, a really important win for them to have. And it starts off a stretch where they could start to dig their way out of this very competitive middle of the Big East pack. Well, if they want to build, now that we are at the point we're at, Bill, because I think early on in the season we were thinking, okay, teams need to get games in, they need to play, they need to get in a routine, they need to, you know, play through this pandemic. And that was, I think, a focus. Now that we're about to turn the calendar to February, now I've, I've allowed myself at least to say, hmm, Where's their resume? Same here. Start to look at the brackets and say, wow, there's going to be an NCAA tournament soon. And so I've started to look at it. And depending on who you're looking at in terms of brackets, Providence, as they typically are around this time of the year, the last few years, they are on the bubble. And some uh, bracketologists have them in. Some have them, you know, first four out, you know, next four out, you name it. Uh, But... This stretch in the schedule, as you mentioned, Bill, can convince a lot of people that they belong. Because I think for the Big East, if you look at it, there's probably going to be five or six teams that get into the tournament. And Providence is probably battling with Seton Hall, Marquette. Um, you know, teams like that that have good records that are right there, sort of bubble teams, and you just beat one of them in Marquette and you split with them, and that's important. Yes. That was why that was such an important game. Yes. Your next five, you got Georgetown Saturday, who you got to take care of that. That's a team that you have to take care of. Uh, you'd love to get that other game with Georgetown rescheduled because obviously that would just help you. Right. Um, and then you've got Seton Hall, and I look at Seton Hall and I say, that game at home, you beat them on the road, you can sweep them. That's a real nice notch on your belt. Yes. And then St. John's, who, you know, Julian Champagne, top scorer in the conference, you know, that's going to be difficult. And Posh Alexander, <laughs> we'll talk about him here in just a second with Alan Breed. <laughs> uh, very good. Very good. <laughs> that's, another, that's another team that you look at. And look, they're four and six in the Big East, but right there, you're five and five. So if you want to separate yourself and you want to become one of those five or six teams, this is the stretch to do it, especially with, okay, you go on the road to Georgetown, but then it's three straight at home with Seton Hall, St. John's, and then cross your fingers. Hopefully, finally, we can see Providence in UConn. And that would be, that's another very tough game. UConn right now is in. Um, So that's a team that you beat them at home. Another nice notch on your belt because they're going to be a tournament team. So this is a stretch where you can uh, separate yourself, beef up your resume. Uh, Your net ranking right now is at 67, so makes a lot of sense. And winning against Marquette at home and splitting was a big deal for them. No, I I think you make a really good point from the standpoint that, yes, I I have also found myself sort of looking toward March a little bit. (laughs) Finally. Um, Because it is sort of right there now. Um, you know, there's there's just been so much uncertainty in the last 10 months in terms of sports and whether or not teams are going to play and whether or not we're going to have games and whether or not we can attend games and, and whatever else. And it's nice now to sort of look at a body of work that's a little bit extended here. Uh, we can evaluate Providence over 16 games. We can see sort of how their schedule is going to take shape the rest of the way. And and so I'm sort of doing the same thing that you are. Uh, I look on Ken Palm and I see that they're favored in their next three. Uh, Georgetown, 
Seton Hall at home, St. John's at home. Uh, UConn, they have them as a one-point dog uh, on Ken Palm. So a coin flip type game in that one. Uh, What you see, and I think big picture, what you see here for Providence is opportunity. And I think that's sort of been the undercurrent of what we've talked about the Friars all the way along. The fact that their schedule in the Big East was going to be good enough where they were going to have chances to add to their resume throughout the season. Um, you know, the other night against Marquette was more in line of a game that they needed to take care of. Marquette would be outside the field of 68 right now. Uh, Georgetown certainly falls firmly in that category. Um, and so with that, we, we look at how Providence got it done here. Um, you, know, you go into the overtime, and I, I think, I think Cody, you had uh, the observation um, above all else here on, on the most important play of the game here. <laughs> um, and that was with about a minute and a half to go in overtime. Providence is up by three uh, after a dunk by D.J. Carton. Uh, David Duke misses a jumper. Marquette's running it out. They have numbers on the break. And Alan Breed swoops in for a steal, uh, just rips Greg Elliott clean in the open court. Um, you know, Now, people are going to look and, and they're going to say Alan Breed made the three-pointer with about 35 seconds left that, that iced this one. Big shot. Big shot. And I think he's one for eight at that point. So a, a big shot uh, from a freshman who didn't have a good shooting night. But people make shots. Freshmen can make shots. David Duke made a great play and found him. It was an open three. You would hope, you might even expect, that he's going to make that one because he is wide open. The steal, for me, is something that you don't necessarily see a young player do. Not only did he have the wherewithal to get back on defense and make a play on the ball, but he did it cleanly and without fouling, Yep. which I think is, is sort of like... The next step that you see a lot of kids take when they get into college, the game's a little faster. They start to play defense with their hands and not with their feet. Um, you know, they don't necessarily have that that positional or that body awareness to defend at an elite level. When you see him sort of cut across on a diagonal and just rip the ball clean without committing a foul, which would have put Marquette on the line and given them a chance to cut it to one, um, what a great play. And, and it sort of set Providence on the way the rest of the way. It was 64-61 at that point. They end up plus six the rest of the way. I, I mean, really, the definition of a winning play, that steal by Alan Breed. That's it. That's, those are the two words right there, Bill. And you tweeted that out when we were watching the game. Winning play. That's what it was. And when you see a freshman do that, that to me was the most encouraging thing, I completely agree with you, that I saw from Alan Breed. You can score all the points you want. You know, and look, Alan Breed's been really good. He had a double double against Villanova. I mean, the, the kid as a freshman has been really good. And the he's last three games, he's, he's it's been, just excellent. been excellent. Yeah. Uh, and and what a great thing for Providence. I mean, it's just the you you think that these players, when you recruit them, they're going to come in. You just you don't know. You the, you think you have an idea of what they can be, but then Alan Breed comes out. And this is just a pleasant surprise, I think, for, for everybody. Uh, and a needed one, because you still yeah. don't have Jared Bynum, right. who, who's dealing with a groin strain. Uh, when he goes out for an extended period, you're thinking, uh-oh, they might be in a little bit of trouble here. Right. But now you have a guy that can handle the ball. And it allows David Duke to play a little bit more off the ball. And it just it, it's been a huge pleasant surprise and a huge lift for the Friars. But when you see him make a play like that, that to me is it's Marcus Smart. It's winning plays, yeah. and when when you have a guy doing that as a young player, 
you just you get more excited. And Ed Cooley said it himself after the game. You get you get excited because you say, "Wow, I can I can work with this. Anybody can hit shots for me. Anybody can score points. We will find guys to score." But when you have numbers going down the court in a tight game and you need to have a stop or you need, instead of fouling and putting Marquette at the line and cutting it to a one-point game, it's a steal, it's clean, and all of a sudden it just and it just deflates the other team. Right. When you have numbers going the other way, you think you got an easy couple of points at least, and then a freshman comes over and does that. I mean, just what a huge, huge play. And then to hit the shot, too, uh, when you're not having a, a great shooting night is, again, another great sign. Because if you're a young player, especially when you get to the college level, if you're missing shots, I think a natural tendency is to just kind of get deflated yourself. And he didn't allow that to happen. And that play was set up, too. You know, look, Allen hit the shot, but it again speaks to how great David Duke was in that game to be able to have the ball in your hands and recognize, and he talked about it after the game, recognize that, okay, his defender's not going to be able to get over there and disrupt the shot for Allen. He saw that, the court vision, because of the way the play was set up. That that to me was was striking with David Duke, and it just it it speaks to not only you know how good of a player he, he is and how smart he's become, but you know he's unselfish, Bill. Yeah. He's unselfish and set up a teammate to hit a big shot. He doesn't need to do it himself. He can do it himself. We've seen it. He's doing it time and time again. But to set up Reed like that, um, yeah, D- David Duke has has turned into a special player, and it it struck me today too. He's second in the Big East in assists per game. Second, yeah, that to me was like wow. All of a sudden, right? Okay, <laughs> that that to me, wow. You know that that speaks to he's stuffing the stat sheet and he's <laughs> and he's getting into. I thought of today uh, because I saw a Twitter uh, Twitter clip uh, from out in Australia. Uh, Bryce Cotton hit a big shot uh, last night for the Perth Wildcats, and happens um, a lot. <laughs> I was just like, yeah, no big deal. It is what it is. It's just Bryce being Bryce. But I saw uh, David's leading the Big East, thirty-seven point seven minutes per game, and every time they play in overtime, I'm thinking, oh boy, is he going to get over forty minutes here? Is that average going to keep going up? Uh, you know. So David, uh, yeah, all around, he's just he's becoming one of the great friars that we've seen in recent memory, and uh, it, it's fun to watch. Yeah, 43 minutes the other night for David Duke, 31 <laughs> points. Uh, he was 10 for 22 from the field, which, you know, compared to his efficiency at some points early in the season, isn't where he was. But his previous five games, he was 27 for 83. Uh, 12 for 50 from two. Wow. Uh, and, and I think, you know, Ed Cooley alluded to it a little bit. He had a media availability during the week and, and you know, just sort of said that, that they need David to relax a little bit, uh, to trust his teammates a little bit more. Um, you know, maybe he's pressing a little bit. Maybe he's trying to do a little too much. Uh, I think that's maybe sort of the other side of being a great player. Maybe the curse of being a great player is you're trying to do it. You're trying to lift your team. You understand how important you are. Uh, and sometimes the best thing to do is take a half step back and do less. Um, it's counterintuitive, but it is sort of that next step, that next part of the evolution in, in being a great player. And, and I think we, you know, we saw David sort of snap back into that the other night. Um, 31 points, 6 rebounds, 6 assists in 43 minutes. Um, 
you know, I, I, I just there was a sequence in the overtime for me that he, he sort of pulled all the tools out of the box. Uh, he made a step back three pointer on the left wing. He goes down the other end and grabs a defensive rebound. Uh, and then on the ensuing offensive possession, he comes off a curl in the lane, goes up against a bigger guy, and gets fouled. So not only is he skillful and he's positionally aware, he's also willing to be physical on top of it, uh, which you know his rebounding numbers over the last 10 games or so are way up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, I have to think that there was you know, maybe a challenge from Ed Cooley, a directive there saying, hey, you're a big guy, you're six foot five, uh, we're playing three guards. We need one of you guys to get in there and, and maybe get, you know, sharpen your elbows a little bit. Uh, and if if that was a personal challenge to, to David Duke, it has been well received because <laughs> he is in there getting the ball. Uh, and Providence's rebounding numbers as a team are, are really good right now and have been over the last nine or ten games. Uh, you know, I just I, I look at his development, um, you know, the fact that he's turning into a complete player, uh, you know, one of, if not the best players in the Big East. Um, you know, and I and I just think uh, it, when we talked about this on a previous podcast, I, I just think of how far he's come. Oh yeah, you know, from from the kid he was in high school. Just you know, and I and I wonder to myself, do we appreciate him enough? Do we do we understand like the amount of development that's happened in his game over the last five years? Like, can we even remember? the skinny kid that he was who wasn't necessarily a great shooter and you know sort of had arms and legs going everywhere and and was kind of figuring out what to do with them but wasn't entirely sure yet um and now we see this kid in one of the best conferences in the country doing the things that he's doing and making them look easy at at times It, it really is a special thing to watch it's a tremendous story it's a tremendous story, and I, we'll keep talking about it because of his his local roots and and being brought up here, and the fact that he's playing for his hometown school and starring and growing into a star. Um, yeah, I maybe I remember it a little bit because I, I can look back and I've seen the highlights from you know the night when he beat Hendrickson at the Pizzatola Center to win the Division One title. And we all kind of looked around. And uh, I remember my, my friend, uh, our friend, I should say, uh, Jeff Kolb, who's now working at uh, Fox 4 in Dallas. He was working at, uh, at Channel 10 at the time. And right. I remember he and I looking at each other like, who is this kid? Yeah. Where, where did this kid come from? Right. Like, and we had seen him during the season, um, but... Boy, to see him do that um, uh, for for John Cavanaugh and the uh, and the classical purple, I was like, okay, well we got we got ourselves a player, and we had seen some good players uh, play for classical. Keelan Ives was another kid that I think of that was a you know great player, played at Ryder University. Terrell Toe yeah. ended up playing at Brian Ishmael Batista. They had three thousand point scores at one point there. But you saw with. The raw talent at the time. The physicality. There was something there, and the confidence that he played with. Yeah. And, and, and the way he just he, he represented himself in front of us after that game. I said, man, this kid could be something. And then all of a sudden, people notice, starts getting offers, and then he goes to, you know, goes to a prep school and Cushing and, and plays, uh, you know, plays well and develops there, and then... Um, obviously, he starts getting the calls from from Ed Cooley and um, ends up at Providence, and and here we are. And you know, you, you weren't sure when he might make a leap 
with the Friars. Um, we had seen some flashes with David, but he hadn't put it all together like he has this year. Right. And he has taken the leap. It's very reminiscent of the leap the junior year, and we've talked about this before, of, of Chris Dunn and the development we saw from Chris Dunn his junior year. And that's when we sort of recognized, wow, this, this kid could play at the next level because he was putting it all together. And I think they're different players in a lot of ways. Uh, there's some similarities there as well. Um, but it is really fun to see the development and to, to see the buzz around David, too, as a kid from Providence. It's, it's, that's the best part of the story, I think, for us, is that he, he's from here. And you're talking about a kid that grew up with, you know, and is friendly with a, ki- a guy named Quiddy Pay, who right now is, is lifting 200-pound kettlebells Boy. and putting them up on Twitter and is going to be a first-round draft pick in the NFL. Boy, if, you know, you know I, I, have, I, I, am, uh, I am not exactly what you would call a fit person. Uh, I, I, I never really have been. Um, you know, but I, I, I mean, if if I ever wanted to feel worse about my physical conditioning, uh, watching Quiddy Pay do one-legged squats with a weight vest on and a 200-pound kettlebell, uh, that was about rock bottom for me. Uh, yeah. I mean, you you just when when you see something like that though, and and you think back to you know when Quiddy was at Hendrickson and he's anchoring the four by one hundred meter relay uh, on the track team, uh, which requires an incredible amount of speed you understand just how truly athletic these guys are crazy i mean it's 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 terrifying in a way it really is but what i love is just they they grew up in this city and they know each other well you can tell yeah um oh no they're rooting for each other which i think is great tremendous and and that's that's the best part of the story is you're you're seeing multiple athletes from not only providence but this state uh, you know, shine on a big stage and, you know, making it to the next level. And that's, it's going to be a story we're going to be continuing to follow here the next year or two. And um, it's, it's really, it's fun. It's really fun. And to see David shine too, uh, and, and, and Quiddy too. I mean, they're, they're great kids. That's the thing. We've interacted with them, Bill, and we've talked to yeah. them and they're, they're great kids, are great people and they're, and they're becoming great young men. And, and that's, uh, that's what we love about this. You know, Providence was coming all uh, coming off a loss at Villanova, a game where they played well in the first half. They they had it in the mud. They had it going the way it needed to go. It, it, it was a, a fist fight for 20 minutes. Uh, you know, and then Villanova's efficiency just took over it at both ends. Uh, second half, they only committed two turnovers. Uh, they really squeezed Providence on, on the offensive end. Um, you know, I, I think Villanova is just like it's one of those teams that like they're at level 10. And unless you're ready to play at level ten, they they tend to humble you pretty quickly, um, you know. And I think Providence in in the first half was was just about at its maximum or, or just about pushing it. Um, you know, it, it takes it takes real strain to stay in a game with Villanova. It's it's really hard when when they're playing well. It's difficult to reach them, um, you know. And I think we we saw that over two halves. It was a 71-56 loss. Um, you know, put Providence in a position where you know they just needed to bounce back uh, in in home game that they should win that they were favored in uh, and did so. Um, you know, and now they they have a chance to go to Georgetown. Um, Seton Hall and St. John's at home. St. John's will bring in uh, the current 
Big East Rookie of the Week in Posh Alexander. Uh, Ed Cooley had a, a difference of opinion on that. Uh, he thought Alan Breed should have won the award. Um, you know, Alan had two terrific games against Creighton and against Villanova, a pair of nationally ranked foes on the road. Uh, as you mentioned, Villanova, he had 18 points and 11 rebounds, both career highs. Uh, Villanova had 15 and 6 uh, and three assists, I want to say, in that game. Yep. Um, you know, I we we can debate the merits of awards and what they mean, and and you know who votes on them, whether it's the coaches or their SIDs or, you know, just somebody in the athletic department who's going to check the box for their own player. Um, you know, I would imagine that. Uh, you know, and I, I would expect nothing less from Ed Cooley. He, he's always been a, an advocate for his players. Um, you know, the other day we were talking about Nate Watson, uh, who has been named to the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar Center of the Year Award, the final list, the final ten. Uh, and there are some names on there that you'll recognize, like Luca Garza and Evan Mobley and Nemius Queda and Charles Bassey. Uh, and Ed Cooley would, would just say with a straight face that Nate Watson is the best player out of that group, and he wouldn't take anybody else. He would say that Alan Breed is the best freshman in the Big East, and, and he won't take anybody else. Um, and, and if you don't know Ed, you, you look at that in black and white, and you say it's hyperbole, and, and he can't possibly believe that. Um, you know, and sometimes I, I find myself thinking, Ed, come on, you know, that's, that's a bit of a stretch. Um, but that's just who he is. Yep. He's just going to advocate for his players. He doesn't care if, if you think he's wrong or that he's ridiculous or that his opinion is wrong or whatever else. He's going to say that he has the best players. He has the best guys. He wouldn't want to play with anybody else. That's just who he is. That's how he runs his program. That's how he supports his kids. He just he stands behind his kids and believes in them, and I, I, I that's what you love about Ed Cooley. That's why the players would love about Ed Cooley. Um, you know he's fired up when he uses the Stevie Wonder line. He's used that yeah. plenty of times, <laughs> and he used that with Alan Breed in the Freshman of the Week. Uh, and and I you know I appreciate his uh, his passion on the subject. Um, as you said, you could debate the merits. Uh, you know, Posh Alexander he's deserving of of the 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 award. Yeah. He had eight 18.6 assists against uh, UConn, who's 23rd ranked at the time. 20-point uh, game against Utah Valley. Um, maybe you look at Breen and you say, okay, well, he played two ranked teams and put those numbers up. He had a double-double against Villanova. You know, maybe they could have been co-freshman of the week. I, I, you know, I'm not sure. I don't know what the discussion was. Bottom line is, Pasha Alexander's a good freshman for St. John's. Somebody you're going to have to watch out for when you play him. Allen Breed has been a pleasant surprise. And a good freshman for the Friars, and has been an important player the last, you know, month, month and a half. So that's all that matters. Awards are awards. What matters is their play on the court. And if Alan Breed continues to do this, the Friars are only going to benefit, and that's a good thing for them. Now, agreed. Uh, you know, so as we said, Providence will play Georgetown this weekend, Saturday, one o'clock. Uh, Want to say that game is on CBS Sports Network? Uh, no, it's on CBS Network. Oh, the big CBS. They moved. They moved it to the big CBS. Oh, very yep, good. Yep. Okay. So we'll hear the we'll hear all the music and na 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 na. na. We'll hear all that and oh my God, all the fanfare can, can for we, Georgetown. Can we get Uncle Vern on the call? <laughs> if, uh, I'm thinking if it's CBS Network, we're probably getting Ian Eagle, who I think is. Excellent. Ian Eagle's very good. Excellent. He, Great he guy, is. too. Great guy. He so if, if he's on the call, 
I'm I'm stoked. That'll be great. Uncle Vern, folks, is is Vern Lundquist. Of course, uh, you know for for folks who don't know that, that's sort of inside baseball uh, in the industry. He is Uncle Vern because he's been around forever uh, and just has that soothing, reassuring family delivery that uh, you know just about anybody wants. If if you want excitement, uh, if you want mayhem in in your play by play, you get Gus Johnson or Kevin Harlan. Uh, you know their energy is is just going to come flying through your television uh if you want a, a little more relaxed sunday stroll you you go for Vern lundquist so uncle Vern, it is i'm kind of looking this up right now it looks like uh it is iron eagle and clark kellogg oh, according good. to some of the uh the tweets i'm seeing that's very good which is going to be great very good that's awesome good broadcast crew we, yep. we enjoy that uh we're also going to have the roadie rams in action on saturday uh at dayton and uri is going to be coming off two straight wins uh the latest 7360 at LaSalle on Wednesday night. Um, you know, a game where Jeremy Shepard uh, sort of took the mantle and, and ran with it. He had a career high 25 points in this one, 7 for 11 from the field, uh, was deadly from three point range. Uh, you know, really good from outside, 5 for 6 from deep. Um, you know, Rhode Island has won two straight. They will go for their third straight win uh, against the Flyers. Uh, you know, that was a place where, you know, last year you had the top two teams in the A 10 matching up. Dayton was sixth ranked in the country. Uh, URI was 18 and 5 and, and 10 and 1. Uh, you know, that was a real showdown game uh, on a weeknight in February. I remember it well. Um, UD Arena was just on fire. Uh, you know, <laughs> one, sure. one of the best atmospheres, uh, not only in the A-10, but in all of college basketball. Uh, and it's a shame that it won't be anything like that uh, on Saturday. I think they are allowing limited fans uh, at UD Arena. So maybe a little background noise for, for the Rams to navigate. Uh, Coity, I, I look at you know their last two games uh, Sunday against Fordham without Fats Russell, a 52-42 slog. Um, you know neither team was particularly good in that one. You uh, or I managed to to dig it out in the second half. I thought they were better on Wednesday, and and I don't think it was a coincidence that they were better with Fats Russell back in the lineup. He's dealing with a core muscle injury. He had 14 points and six assists. All those were in the first half. Uh, he was good from the field, just four for eight. Uh, you know, sort of downshifted a little bit and and allowed his teammates to get off a little bit more. Uh, you know, Shepard said Russell came to him in the first half and said, "Look, you're hot. It's it's your turn." Um, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, "You know, if you need me, I'll, I'll be here. But otherwise, you go right ahead." Uh, you know, so a, a good win for the Rams, a, a game that they needed to have, uh, and maybe they can start to build something here a little bit as they head into the second half of their Atlantic Ten schedule. When you have Jeremy Shepard having a night like that, you're right. Let him have the ball. Just, just let him go. Let him go. Um, but I was, you, you pointed out the assist numbers in the first half for for Fats, and it's funny. I was putting together the highlight, and I, and I was running around that night. It was a five o'clock start, so I didn't get to watch the game live. So I was just kind of watching it back and trying to find some good plays. And yep. it seemed like every time I found a you know a good play in the game, Fats was right there. Fats was right there setting somebody up. I think if there was a dunk end of the first half where, you know, Fats drove and it was just, you know, easy setup for Mikhail Mitchell. He cuts through the lane and then there you go. You know, you throw it down. Like it, it Fats was important in that game. And I, I think the impressive thing, uh, you know, Jeremy obviously had a great night and, and great shooting day. Um, but the impressive thing to me is 
Rhodey sort of masked one of its deficiencies and one of its flaws and won this game. Bill, they turned the ball over 19 times, Sal. Right. And that we have talked, we will talk about the turnovers because they continue to happen for URI. Right. Um, but we're not talking about it because they were able to mask it. They were able to sort of overcome it. And, you know, are they sort of learning to sort of skirt around it? Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, it, when you play a good program like Dayton, I think it's probably going to show up more. And that still has to be. That still that number has to come down. It does, and in the Fordham game, it did. Uh, you know, I think it was only eleven that day. Um, but when I looked at that, and I said they had nineteen turnovers on the south. Wow! But it was masked, and they were able to overcome it. And and that's a sign of I, I think progress because when you have a flaw like that, and they do. I mean, they have the most turnovers in the Atlantic Ten out of the fourteen teams. Um, you know that that's a sign of okay, we can still go out there, grind out a game. And and still win and earn a road win too, which is which is important in a, in a small gym like LaSalle, like that. When you're going to Philadelphia, you know, good for them for doing that. Um, I think another guy I wanted to bring up too, because I, you and I were both at the Fordham game, and first of all, I want to say thank you to you know the URI staff yes. for allowing us into the building. Yes, uh, it was very refreshing to be at a college basketball game in this state for the first time this season. The only other time I had gone to a game, um, like you, Bill, was down at Mohegan Sun uh, during the Thanksgiving break to see URI. Um, It was great to be there. Uh, It's strange not to have the fans. Um, It's a strange atmosphere, but, you know, thankful and happy to be there. Uh, That was a good day that day. And, you know, a kid that played 18 minutes against LaSalle, too, for Ish Ish Leggett. And and I think that's a kid, he's come up on the podcast before, um, and I want to continue to see more out of this kid. He's he's one of those young players where you say, I want to see more. I want to see more because I think he can be a real difference maker and make those types of what we were talking about with Alan Breed, winning plays. He can come in and he can give you a spark, give you a little energy. And he was really important in that Fordham game too, Bill, because you didn't have hats. And so he had to take on more of a burden. And in 25 minutes, he's a season-high 12 points. But a play that stood out to me, Bill, was sort of the, I think, beginning of the second half. Yep. Rody misses a shot. And it was great for me because I had the camera angle. I'm looking through the camera lens. Yep. And I all of a sudden, Ish flies in and grabs an offensive rebound and just tosses it right back up. And it drops into the hoop. Right. And that to me was, hmm. And this is why last time we talked on the podcast, we said, I want to see more of Ish. Because when you have a feeling that a kid's going to come in and make those types of plays, you want to see more of it. And look, he's a freshman. You know, at LaSalle, it was more Jeremy Shepard's game. And you didn't, it didn't necessarily sort of flash like, you know, the Fordham game. But... I want to see more and more of this kid because I think he can be a player for the Rams, and I think fans are recognizing that too. Yeah, you look at uh, Ish Leggett, and and you um, you know the Fordham game specifically. He had ten and six in the second half alone. There you go. Uh, finished with twelve points and, and seven rebounds, so he did most of his damage over the last twenty minutes. Uh, he also had a play on the defensive end where he dove for a loose ball, uh, went through the advertising boards, uh, you know, under the Fordham basket, and, and ended up on the cement uh, on the Ryan Center floor. Um, you know, bounced right up and, and 
you know, was able to continue. But that that's certainly the, the sort of sweat equity that, that you would like to see, and especially out of a young player who's, who's trying to earn his minutes. Uh, the other night against LaSalle, he was a little less effective. Um, you know, just three points, no assists, two turnovers in, in 18 minutes. Uh, but he did get more time because Rody had a couple injuries to deal with. Uh, Jalen Carey rolled his ankle in the first half. Uh, Jermaine Harris also had his foot acting up. That was an issue for him early in the season, caused him to miss the first two games. Uh, you know, so maybe, you know, Rody is going to arrive at an eight-man rotation here uh, by default almost. Um, you know, we, we expect both Carey and Harris to be available to play at Dayton. Um, you know, but if, if they are physically limited in any way, you know, maybe this is the avenue for David Cox to, to find a little more lineup continuity. Yeah, and, and <laughs> we talked about this last time and the difficulties of cutting down a rotation and what goes into it and the thought process. Um, and, and Bill, I thought that was you know an interesting discussion. Um, but you're right. Maybe, maybe in terms of cutting it down, it, it may happen naturally for you. Um, though I, I think they are arriving. I think they are arriving at the fact. I think they were at sort of a nine-man rotation um, because I think the minute trend for Jermaine Harris has sort of gone down a bit. It has. Uh, you know, uh, and and that's. You know, we heard a couple games ago it was a coach's decision and whatnot. Um, so I, I think when you do that, you're right. I, I mean, we when you have a shorter rotation, it sort of guy it gives guys roles, and we've talked about that before too. Um, so whether it happens naturally or not, I'm not sure. But you know, maybe I just campaigned for for Ish Leggett, you know, to to get into that rotation. Yeah. Um, but I think rightfully so because I just. He leaves you want more when you watch him. You're, and, and you're, in, you're intrigued by possibility. Yes, of course. Yeah. Of course. And so that's why I, I look at that and I say, you know, maybe they're arriving at it naturally, but maybe they are and have been thinking about it. And that's why I point out Harris's minutes. No, that's, that's certainly um, – I think that's a natural – uh, feeling when it comes to players who are developing or, or new players. Uh, you have guys who are in your rotation or, or transfers who, who have been at other places who you've seen play, and you sort of have in your mind a, a baseline expectation of who they are and who they can be. Uh, the freshmen or, or, or guys who have played at schools that you haven't seen, you know, maybe junior college guys, you don't know as much about, and, and so you wonder how much more is there. I, I think that's only natural. I, I think that's probably why you know fans sort of gravitate towards uh, a guy on the bench who who they like, who maybe they've seen flash a little bit, uh, and there's probably a starter or someone who plays major minutes who they don't like as much or, or have seen too much of, uh, and so there's that natural push pull there, um, you know, of who you'd like to see play and who you'd like to see sit. Um, you look at the impact of Fats Russell um, against Fordham; they only had eight assists in the game. Against LaSalle, they had eight assists in their first 11 field goals. Huh. Uh, you know, so I think that's that's really important to have him in the game as a facilitator. Uh, he's by far your most certain ball handler. Um, you know, Last check, he's the only player on URI's team with more assists than turnovers this season. Uh, you know, So the steadiest pair of hands that they have at their disposal belong to him. Uh, you know, I'd also look at, at, you mentioned the turnovers early. Uh, URI gave up 30 points off turnovers against LaSalle. That was a season high. Wow. But only three of those were in the last eight minutes. URI had a three-point lead. They end up winning the game by 13. I don't think that's a coincidence um, because when they were able to take care of the ball in this one, Coity, they shot over 50% in each half. They were 15 for 27 for two, and they were 8 for 14 from three. 
They got good shots. They ran good offense. When they were able to get shots off, they scored at a really high clip. Just just consider this. This game was played in 68 possessions. On the 49 that URI did not turn it over, they averaged a point and a half. Wow. So take their turnovers, cut them in half, cut them down to nine. They score 88 points in the game and win by 30. Cut them even by five. They score 80 points and win by 20. So this isn't necessarily a skill problem for them. Uh, it's not necessarily a lack of proficiency shooting the ball. They actually shoot it reasonably well from three, uh, certainly compared to who they were two years ago. Um, you know, they're, they're up over 33.5% from three, which is middle of the pack in the nation, but you can work with it. And, and you have you know, certain guys, whether it's Jeremy Shepard or, or DJ Johnson, who can make shots from out there, who, who are proficient. Um, it's just a matter of nailing down on the finer details and, and eliminating the carelessness with the ball. Um, you know, sometimes they, they do things that you know, just boggle the mind. Early in the first half, they, they had a possession under no pressure where Alan Betran threw a pass to Fats Russell, who was still in the backcourt. They got a backcourt violation about two minutes into the game un, under no pressure. And you, you watch something like that and, and you think to yourself, okay. That's just careless. Yes. It's a lack of application. Um, you know, if, if your eye was able to dial in a little bit more and maybe eliminate four or five of those a game, they have enough ability to punish the opponents. They did that against LaSalle the other night. You could argue that they should have beat Fordham by a lot more than 10. Fordham's a terrible team. They probably have two Division One players, uh, and, and I might be being kind at that point. I, I mean, they're really bad. Um, you know, but URI has ability here, and I think that's probably where the fans get most frustrated with them, is that you see ability, it just hasn't necessarily gelled all the time. It comes in flashes and then it goes away. Uh, the last eight minutes against LaSalle the other night, I think we saw it. Uh, the last you know, eight to twelve minutes against Fordham, I think we saw it when, when they put the Rams away. Um, you know, And I certainly think that, that they have the players to carry this thing forward, and they have enough guys to get it done, uh, not only on Saturday against Dayton, uh, but also at home next Wednesday, a big matchup against VCU when you or I will go for a sweep of that series this year. Well, and this is an important stretch. And, you know, If you want to continue to play and, and play good postseason basketball in March, this is a stretch here. Uh, you're going to get Dayton twice in the next six games. You go there this weekend, and then it is, it's VCU, UMass, St. Louis, Davidson is playing really well, and Dayton again. This is a huge stretch in their schedule. Mm-hmm. And if we hate to, to keep harping on the turnovers, but you're right, Bill. If they can cut five of those a game out, you know, I think they're going to have to if they're going to compete with the cream of the crop that they're going to see in their next five, six games That's right. here in the schedule. So, And if you're able to do that, you're right. I, I think that's a great way to put it. It's you know, fans watch this team and they say, we know how good they can be when they dial in, when they're doing the right things, when they're shooting efficiently, because they can do that, as we saw with the LaSalle game. If they can do that during this stretch and just a few of those a game, cut them out, 
then they're going to give themselves a really good chance to win every night. And they're going to be able to compete on the level that I know that David Cox and his staff think they can compete at, which is with anybody in the country. That's why early in the season, they're taking calls from Wisconsin and saying, sure, we'll get on a plane and play you because we think when we are at our best, we can compete with you and with anybody around. Right. Uh, playing the opponent is difficult enough. You shouldn't have to play yourself exactly. as well. Yep. Um, you know, you go back to the Richmond game. They had 19 turnovers on the road. They lost by seven. Uh, UMass, they have 20 turnovers on the road. They lose by two in overtime. You, you just you consider how attainable, how winnable those games were. Um, you know, and I'm sure that, that those are the things that keep coaching staffs up late at night. Yeah. Um, and, and those are the things that you know, give us some podcast material, uh, you know, which, which is a lot less serious than, uh, you know, what those guys are dealing with. Just to, to wrap up the URI topic, um, sure. I'll ask you this, Bill, sure. because we are now talking about, you know, going into February and, and speaking about March and postseason basketball coming up. Yeah. What does Rody have to do here? Uh, are they at the point where they have to win the A-10 tournament? Not if they win out. Yeah. I think I think they need to win out. Um, you know, I, I understand what their metrics say, and I and, and I get where they're at uh, right now. They're sixty five in Ken Palm, um, seventy two in the net. Right, which mm. which is it's within distance. Um, you know, it's not like they're a hundred or, or one twenty five no. or anything like that. Um, you know, but you look at the schedule that they're going to play, um, and there's really only there's two quadrant one games there, most likely. At St. Louis and, and at Davidson, um, you know. Otherwise, Dayton isn't going to get there. Uh, VCU at home is not going to be a top thirty team. UMass isn't really going to do you much good. Whether you if you lose it, uh, if you win it, sorry. Um, you know, Dayton at home is not going to be a top thirty team. At St. Joe's is is a landmine. Mm. Um, you know, so I, I just look at it and I think that. All you really have left are, are two quadrant one games, and and then a few games that if you lose, they're going to hurt you, uh, and that's the nature of being in the A10. Unfortunately, uh, you know it is different from the Big East from the standpoint that you don't have those ready-made top thirty or top seventy-five chances, uh, you know. And so I, I look at URI and and I think you know if they're able to win out and and somehow make the A10 finals, then yeah. I, I think they could scrape for an at-large. Um, you know, the Seton Hall win is really good. Uh, yep. The St. Bonaventure win is is pretty good. Um, you know, I don't know if it's going to sneak into Quadrant 1, but but the Bonnies have played well. Uh, the win at VCU is is most likely going to stand as a Quad 1 win. And another one could really help them, too. I, I looked at, you know, I'm looking at my brackets here and looking at that this morning. Lenardi had VCU as a, as a first four out. Yeah. Which to me was like, hmm, okay, interesting. You know, you sweep them, all of a sudden your resume says, well, I don't know, maybe I should look at Rhode Island. Right, right. And that's, you know, I think that's where Ed Cooley was talking about tiebreakers with Marquette. You don't want to get swept. I, I think you just don't want to put it out there in, in black and white for the selection committee. Hey, we got to pick between these two teams. And Team X beat Team Y twice. Right. How are we going to take Team Y? You, you get, exactly. Last exactly. That's, that's right. I think that's a really good point that, that you make. Um, you know, so the VCU game is doubly important in, in that way. Um, you know, but just big picture, I, I think Rhodey, to, to be an at-large team, I think they'd need to win out and, and probably go all the way to the A-10 finals. Um, you know, I, I just don't think that – I don't think that 
they're necessarily going to have enough to overcome losing one of these, and, and I just think that their opportunities are limited to really make a splash. Um, you know. Now that said, uh, based on what we've seen from them, they're capable of beating anyone, and they're capable of losing to anyone. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's that's just that's sort of who they are. They're nine and eight. They're six and four in the league. Uh, and they have some good wins. They have some tough losses. Uh, that's that's sort of who they are. You you wouldn't necessarily want to bet on them on any given night, but you also probably wouldn't want to bet against them uh, great know, coming out and, and playing well. Yep. Um, you know, so Rody will play Dayton 4 o'clock on Saturday. That's on CBS Sports Network. Um, we also welcome back the Bryant Bulldogs this weekend after, after seemingly an eternity off. <laughs> uh, the Bulldogs haven't played since January 15th uh, when they split – at St. Francis, PA, and and uh, you know managed to steal the second game of that series against our old friend Miles McQuiggan. Uh, you know Bryant is playing the preseason favorite in the NEC this weekend, Fairleigh Dickinson. They have two games in Teaneck uh, starting Saturday uh, and then playing again on Sunday. Uh, Coity, just to reset the Bulldogs, they are ten and three overall, six and two in the NEC. Uh, they're currently tied in the loss column with St. Francis Brooklyn, who they split with. Uh, if Bryant is able to win out, they will win this league. They will win the regular season title um, because I don't think that St. Francis Brooklyn will go undefeated. And, and I have to imagine that Bryant will have some sort of magical tiebreaker over them. Um, <laughs> you know, but I, I just I look at this weekend and, and we met with uh, Jared Grasso and with Michael Green the third. Um, who has been named to the Lou Henson watch list uh, that goes to the top player in mid-major college basketball. Um, and they were both very quick to remind us, the media, that Fairleigh Dickinson was the preseason favorite in the NEC. And, and so you can imagine what the messaging has been from Jared Grasso to his players over the last few days. Yeah, yeah. They, they know where they were picked. They know where Fairleigh Dickinson was picked. Um, and so, yeah, there's some bulletin board material there. But... At the same time, Bill, I think Bryant has stepped forward and has the confidence now that, okay, we saw the talent that we had. We've been putting it on the floor. And most nights we've had a chance to win. I think every night we've had a chance to win. Every in, night. Including the Syracuse game. So <laughs> they are ultra confident. Mm-mm. You know, hey, look, if you need some motivation, something on the bulletin board, go ahead, post it up there. But I think they know where they stand. They know where Fairleigh Dickinson stands. And so they've got to go in there and be them. Be this themselves. Was, it was it was very uh in, in terms of in terms of bulletin board material, this was very Belichickian. Uh it was very Harrisonian. Uh, it was very Bruskian, uh, you know, very rebellion. Uh, well, the the Belichickian thing I came out of our media availability with the Bulldogs with was, I remember, I think it was his second year on the team. Uh, do you remember Brandon LaFell, the I wide do. receiver? Sure. Won Super Bowl forty nine with the Pats, mm-hmm. and they the next season they were hosting the Eagles. I think that was the infamous game where the Pats are up fourteen nothing. Belichick uh, decides for that silly onside kick, and they end up losing to the Eagles. Oh, the the Nate Abner Mortar uh, just, yeah. just against just, Chip Kelly. I, don't, I still don't understand it. I never will. No, it's ridiculous. So, but before that game, that week, Brandon LaFell standing in the locker room, and somebody asked him about, I think the Eagles just were not good that year. Just not good. Yeah. 
And it was one of those weeks where we're like, okay, we're scrapping for material. What are we going to talk about here? Because the Eagles just aren't. It's not an electric matchup here. Um, but I think somebody asked Brandon LaFell, like, when, when Belichick speaks in front of the team, with a team that's not good like this Chip Kelly Eagles team, yeah. does he really, does he sell you that they are a good team, like he tries to sell to us. Uh, yeah, they're a really good team, uh, really well coached. Like that's what he says about every single team. Very good, very good. But Brandon LaFell said, "You know what? Yeah, he dresses it up. No matter what happened the previous week, because I think they got blown out the previous week. Right. Bill will go in and he will find the good place." And he will show them in front of the team. And he will say, this is what they do right. And he will find our bad plays. And he will say, this is what you did wrong and you need to improve on. I thought of that with Jared Grasso and with the Bulldogs this week. Because it was sort of an interesting conversation of, well, look, you guys have been playing really, really well. So, Mike, what kind of clips have you been watching in film sessions? Is Jared pointing out your flaws or is he praising you? And it was sort of the... Yeah, he's pointing out what we need to improve upon. He's telling us right. you need to be <clears throat> need to be better, get better every day, that sort of thing. <laughs> right. And so that's where I saw the the belly checkian influence, I think, from the Bulldogs, which was interesting. Yeah, it was it was more the first Patriots group of of Super Bowls there. Sure, uh, Teddy Bruschi was sort of the ringleader on that. Rodney Harrison was the type of guy who you probably could have walked up to and said, you know, Rodney, you look very handsome today, and <laughs> and and Rodney would have said to you, what? I didn't look handsome yesterday, right? Uh, you know that that's just who they. were were very edgy very yep. uh you know very unsatisfied i remember belichick in a in a build up to a jets game in that area uh in that era spent two days talking about how good brooks bollinger was uh <laughs> running the bootleg for the jets uh you know and that's that's he expected that to be a huge part of the game plan bollinger running bootlegs and waggle pass and and all sorts of things that could confuse the patriots uh it was nonsense new england smashed them the jets were terrible this was pre-rex ryan um you know but that's that's the sort of thing that coaches do i think we you know we heard some of that from Michael Green, he was obviously channeling uh, what he had heard from his head coach, uh, and and I think that's that's probably what Bryant needs to do uh, because I think you're right, Cody. I, I think that they are going to be generally more talented than than the opponents that they play at this point. Yeah, I think we've seen that through 13 games. Uh, you know, you're playing against Fairleigh Dickinson, who has one of the best players in the league. Jaleel Jenkins is is really good, um, a treat to watch. Really quick guard. Uh, they gave Providence some trouble earlier this season in a game at Alumni Hall. The Friars didn't pull away until the last eight minutes or so. Um, you know, Providence ended up winning that one by 12. But it was it was a little closer than, than what you would expect. Uh, Greg Horrend is a good coach. He's been there for a long time. Um, you know, somebody who has had them in the NCAA tournament twice. Um, you know, and, and, and definitely a, a team that... You know, can pose some problems for Bryant. Uh, you know, but you just think that that if Bryant goes out there and takes care of business and and plays the way they play, um, they're favored in all their remaining games, uh, according to Ken Palm. Um, you know, and so I I would think that, you know, it's just a matter of how they're going to shake off being 15 days inactive. And, and I think it was it's unfortunate that that they had the break when they did. Um, you know, not only because they were playing well and, and they had won seven out of eight but because they were testing negative. Right. Right. Um, 
the thing that I keep looking at, I'm just I'm staring at my numbers here, uh, which kind of blows me away with this weekend's matchup with Fairleigh Dickinson. Yeah. And the reason that, look, we talk about Jenkins and Williams are their two big players. And Elijah they both, Williams, and, yep. And they both score 15 points a game. Yep. Um, and I think as a team, they score about 72, 73. But I can't help but look at this and say, if Bryant Bill plays to their capability offensively, and they're, they now still sit fourth in the country in scoring offense, yep. with just over 89 points per game. Yep. Gonzaga, Iowa, Colgate, Bryant, and Bryant has moved ahead of the Citadel. So there you go. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sitting idle, the Citadel has fallen to fifth. Colgate with our old friend Keegan Records. That's right. Oh, wow. South that's Kingstown right. Store. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Wow. They're that's a good team. Interesting. So I look at that and I say, okay, well, why why is Fairleigh Dickinson three and nine? Right. Why are they three and nine? I'll tell you why. Defense. Yeah, they don't guard anyone. Defense, Bill. They don't guard us. Bill, there's 340 active teams in the nation right now. Defensively, in terms of scoring defense, Fairleigh Dickinson is 326th in the country. That's tough. Tied with Alcorn State down there in Mississippi. Alcorn State and and Fairleigh Dickinson. This is a preseason favorite. Alma mater of the late Steve McNair. The late great Steve McNair. I love Steve McNair. Yeah. But 326th. Not good. If Bryant plays to their capability... And that trend continues with Fairleigh Dickinson. I don't care who is the preseason favorite. I think Bryant's going to walk out of there with two wins. Yeah, Fairleigh Dickinson, they've given up 90 or more uh, on four different occasions. They actually won one of those games against St. Francis PA. Um, you, know, you mentioned there's 340 active teams. Uh, Ken Palm's numbers go back into last year. Uh, they still give teams the benefit of the doubt. Last season, who have not started. Uh, so Fairleigh Dickinson, technically, on Ken Palm, is 347 in adjusted oh, defense. <laughs> oh, that, boy. They've, they've got some Ivy League teams in there who, who haven't played and who aren't going to play, uh, who are above them just based on last season's numbers. It's, it's just a bug in, in the system. Guys, you got to play defense. But uh, they, they don't guard anyone. Uh, you know, And, and if, if you're going to let Bryant go up and down against you, the way they shoot threes and the way they force tempo, uh, you know, you're probably going to have a difficult time getting past them. Uh, but certainly a, a test for the Bulldogs. Um, you win two there and, and you're really on your way. You've got Mount St. Mary's at home. That's normally one of the tougher road trips in the league. So it's nice to play them at home. You've got Sacred Heart on the road, which is an easy trip. Uh, Merrimack, you're home and home with them. And then LIU Brooklyn, you'd be home with them as well. So really, you know, these two games are, are probably probably the last real banana skin that, that they face uh, in their schedule sure. in terms of trying to win the league. Um, you know, The rest of the games you'd feel relatively confident about. Um, you, know, you should have a, a significant advantage, whether it's talent or where you're playing uh, or the situation leading into them. And if you can step forward and be the Bryant team that we've seen so far this season throughout the rest of the schedule and into the postseason... Uh, this is a team where, you know, and I, th- I saw this, again, looking at brackets. Mm-hmm. Um, I look at Lenardi's bracket, and, you know, some brackets I've seen, they say, okay, they throw them in as a 16 seed, and they're playing Villanova, they're playing a one seed, Gonzaga, whatever. Gonzaga, Iowa. But if Bryant can continue to play the way that they've been playing and give themselves a chance to win every night and win the NEC and go on to the tournament, they've played so well, Bill. 
in their conference and so well out of their conference as well yeah. that they may not be one of these teams that wins their conference and goes in as a 16 seed and gets their shot. Right. Lenardi had him as a 14, Bill. Bracket Matrix has him as a 15. That's To me, that's exciting because it's not just a team that's scraping by to win their conference. They, so far, have been asserting themselves as the best team. And if they can continue to do that, that's exciting. It, look, you have goals, and you want to reach your goals, and their goal right now is to play well the rest of the season and win the NEC and get to the tournament. Right. So all the numbers and all that jazz, they don't worry about that, and I don't want to get ahead of myself. But at the same time, I look at that and I say, they've played so well, Bill, and they can play at that level that they would get into the bracket and not just be a once-in-a-UMBC you know, yeah. kind of team right. just, to make the tournament. Just fresh meat just, for the Dobermans. Exactly. Right. They could be a team that... And still, hey, 15 seed, 14 seed, it's still difficult. But look, it's not... You're not playing the best team in the country right off the bat in the NCAA tournament. No, you're you're dealing in real practical terms here. And 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 you know, just to point out what Coit's trying to get at, right now on bracket matrix, your current number one seeds are Gonzaga, Baylor, Michigan, Villanova. You're not beating Gonzaga. <laughs> you're not beating Baylor. It doesn't matter how well you play if you're Bryant, you you you're not gonna beat those two teams. Um, you know, they're too good, they're too skilled, they play your game. They're up tempo. They score. Uh, you know, you're you're not going to be able to make them uncomfortable because they're playing the way you do, but they're doing it with better players. Well, and when you talk about the upset that happened as a 16 seed with UMBC, the perfect storm of that whole thing was the fact that Virginia was a low scoring team, grinded out, physical, that sort of thing. And so UMBC could pick them off in that way. That's exactly When you're right. talking about Gonzaga and Baylor, who I believe, it's funny, I put down the top five in scoring offense in the NCAA. I think Baylor's actually sixth. Yeah. So you're talking about two teams, you're right, Bill, that it, it, you just, you're not going to beat them. Stylistically, it's, it's a really difficult draw mm-hmm. for you because they do want to get up and down and score as well. If you play Villanova, who knows? Maybe speed them up a little bit and, and give them a little bit of a hard time. That that's maybe more along the lines of you know if you're looking for the miracle, the sixteen over the one. Yeah. Maybe just in terms of styles making fights, that's that's more along the lines of someone who you could trip up. You know, one time out of a hundred. Um, but the difference between the ones and the two seeds. You go to the two seeds right now on bracket matrix: Houston, Iowa, Texas, Alabama. Houston's a good team, but they're in the AAC. They're not necessarily going to face the competition that that some others are. Iowa, you really competed with on the road, you know, a couple of years ago. Yeah, you did, uh, you know, so you feel reasonably confident against them. Texas, good team, but not necessarily you know a great team. Alabama wants to get up and down just like you do. Uh, you know, Nate Oates is is doing a great job there. Um, you know, but Alabama stylistically is. In, you know I, that that's someone who's like a they're like a Gonzaga or Baylor light, uh, I guess you could say. <laughs> right. You know, not necessarily the the talent at every position that that those two have. Um, if somehow you could get onto the fourteen line, uh, which which would be about the maximum that that any NEC team could could achieve, uh, Bryant would have to win out and they'd have to do it impressively. Then you drop down to Virginia, Ohio State, Wisconsin, and Tennessee. 
all really good teams, um, you know, but teams who you could make uncomfortable a little bit because they're all a little slower. They're all a little more oh, Wisconsin. Out. Wisconsin, I think of against Rhode Island. They were just they're just tall and large. Filling Can you the, run past them? Maybe Virginia, Wisconsin are just going to slow it down, grind it out. If you're able to get a little bit of a lead and make some threes, maybe you make them a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, you know, Tennessee has struggled recently, and and they're a team that you know generally plays good defense, but um, you know you might be able to stretch them. Uh, a little bit um you know so just in in practical terms in terms of styles making fights you know this is like boxers fighting southpaws sure um it just is something different something that you don't expect um you know and brian is capable of, of maybe scaring some teams going forward if they are able to take care of business here. yeah i didn't want to get ahead of myself but you just did but it's i fun. did <laughs> that's okay but it's fun it's, it's okay. fun talk to talk about because and there's a lot of season left and you know Jared and his staff are going to be focused on weekend by weekend, and they're going to, they want this team to continue to improve. And there are areas that they can improve. But it's fun to think about that and say, boy, they are, they're not just your ordinary step forward NEC team, or at least at their peak, if they play at the level they've been playing at and continue this throughout the season, you know, they have a chance to be. You know, a an NEC team that you know we haven't seen step forward like this in in, in a while, right. I would say. And so, not just a team that's battling it out to try to scrape into the tournament and then go to Dayton for the first four. You know, and that's that's why I bring that up because it's uh, they've got there's it's an exciting team to watch. They are they're the most exciting team in the state to watch. They are okay. Now let's really get ahead of ourselves. Okay, and we'll finish the podcast on this. We're, we're, we're <laughs> okay. really we're really going to go into the ether here. Oh boy, uh, we're going to look ahead to next season for the Bryant Bulldogs. Uh, uh, well, that's yeah. Jared. Jared dropped a, a, a little note in his media availability the other day. He said that. Hall Elijahs and Peter Kiss have committed to coming back uh, and using uh, an extra year granted by the NCAA to play in 2021-22. You know, Bryant would be returning at that point, all five starters, assuming that nobody transfers. Um, You know, they would be the prohibitive favorite in the NEC, you would have to think. Uh, You can only imagine what they would do in terms of non-COVID scheduling, what they would try to add in terms of non-conference games in November and December. Um, you're not going to have many teams who are going to be excited to line up and cut them a check coming out of pandemic financing uh, to lose a game at home. Um, you know, we saw what happened with Syracuse earlier this year. Bryant had them beat in the second half. They let it get away down the stretch. Um, you know, but that was certainly a game that if you're a Power 5 team or Big East team, you're going to look at that film uh, and your athletic director is going to say to the head coach, really, we want to play these guys? Like this, this is what we're going to do. We're we're going to pay them a hundred thousand dollars to come here. You know, you could lose to them. Um, sure. But will they have their coach next year? <laughs> and and I think is. that's you know that's where we get into uh, the business side of, of college basketball and, and really into the ether. Uh, you know, Fordham has parted ways with Jeff Newbauer. Uh, this was the last year of his deal. Um, Quite frankly, I, I think they would have fired him at the end of last season, but they were not going to pay two coaches at once. Uh, you know, Fordham is is traditionally not the biggest spender in college basketball. They are probably in the wrong league in the Atlantic Ten. Um, you know, should probably look to step down. Uh, but the A Ten is is keeping them there for the New York market. Uh, it helps in their TV negotiations. Uh, it certainly helps uh, their programs recruit. You know, whether it be in the New York or New Jersey area, you can basically promise a player. 
a home game, uh, you know, if you're URI, uh, you know, or if you're VCU or, you know, if you're Davidson, you, you can try to get somebody from the Bronx and say, hey, look, Fordham's in the league. You know, your mom and dad are going to get a chance to watch you play here. Um, you know, plus when when league members turn on each other and try to throw somebody out, the the prevailing thought among the presidents and the athletic directors is, well, eventually it's going to be our turn. We don't necessarily want to set this precedent of, of throwing anybody out. Sure. Um, you know, but that's that's a different conversation for another time. Um, you know, just looking at some of the candidates at Fordham, the names we expect to hear, one of them certainly will be Jared Grasso. Uh, you know, he's a Long Island guy. He's previously on staff at Fordham. He served as the interim head coach after Derek Wittenberg was fired in 2009. Um, yeah, I think he was 29 years old at, at that point, uh, you know, and was was – one of, if not the youngest, uh, acting or current head coaches in the country. Um, you're going to hear other names like Shaheen Holloway, who who is the former Seton Hall star, who's at St. Peter's. Um, you know, you're going to hear Big East assistants. Uh, you'll probably hear, you know, some older coaches who who are in the you know on the on the back nine of their careers. Uh, you know, who might be enticed by the New York area. Uh, that's certainly what Iona did when they hired Rick Pitino. Um, you know, so you'll hear, you know, somebody like Paul Hewitt, who, who's a New York guy who's been at George Mason and Georgia Tech. Um, you know, you, those sorts of names will, Lavin will maybe, pop right, up. Too. Steve Lavin's yeah. name will pop up, who was at St. John's in UCLA, um, you know, and still has ties to the New York area. That's, that's generally when, when you're at Fordham, they're either going to hire an establishment coach who, who's in his 60s, who's won at other places, who's looking for one last shot, or you're going to hire the young and hungry guy who's in his 30s or early 40s who is winning at a lower level, whether it be the NEC or the Metro Atlantic uh, or somebody like that. Um, you know, the realities of the Fordham job, it is a bottom half of the league job. Um, but Jeff Goodman of Stadium Sports reported that Fordham could be looking to pay up to 900000 a year, uh, which if you are coaching at Bryant is life-changing money. It's probably a raise of, you know, two and a half, three times what you're making now. Um, you know, so it is as much of a quality of life decision and, and a next 30-year decision as it is for the next five or six. Um, you know, so I wonder, Coity, you know, how much we'll hear Jared's name, uh, not just for the Fordham opening, but for others that, that eventually pop up. Um, you know, and I, I would want to debate the merits of, of him deciding to stay against deciding to leave. So with the Fordham job specifically, uh, you tweeted it out right away, and I completely agreed with you. Um, it's enticing for the, the dollar amount that you just put forward. It's enticing because of the conference that you're in and because of the experience that you have with the program in the area. There are a lot of things that add up and say, well, now you know why Jared's name would be in the running at Fordham. Jared is a talented coach, and we're seeing that this year. And with Bryant stepping forward and having the success they're having this season, he's going to become a hot name, not just with Fordham, but with other schools. And that's why if if Fordham steps forward, and says, you know, we want to hire you. I think if I'm Jared, I look at it and I say, look, I appreciate it, guys. You guys were good to me when I was here. What not? You know, I, I assume that, but I'm not sure the whole situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I th- I'm going to pass. Right. That's what I would say, because I think Jared is going to get better opportunities here in the future. Yes. Maybe even in the same conference, who knows right. what school might be looking for for a coach in the Atlantic 10. 
I know the area. I just I know all the pluses of it, but as you mentioned, the Fordham job right now, it's going to take. I mean, I, I would go with the young route because if I'm Fordham, because I, it just I think it's going to take a lot of work. And maybe yeah. the only reason I'd go with a name like a Steve Lavin would be because of the name and the draw to play for the name, and that's why you would hire somebody like that. So, right. but for where Jared is at in his coaching career there are going to be better opportunities for him at better situations. And that's why if it's Fordham, I pass. See, the blessing and the curse of of being a successful coach and and really a successful player um, is that you do have an ego. You do believe that no matter what circumstances you are placed in, no matter who the opponent is, that you will be able to perform and you will be able to win. Right. Um, you know that that is the blessing and the curse of success. Um, you know, and so I, I certainly think that while Fordham is a really difficult job uh, and and not one that I would take if I was an up and coming head coach or or assistant. Um, you know, if I was someone like Jared, I guarantee you he looks at it and says, "I could win there." I could win at Ford. Yeah, just put me there. You know, give me a chance. Sure. Um, you know, are we going to improve the facilities? Are we going to spend a little more? Are you going to pay me whatever you're going to pay me? I'm going to work 22 hours a day, and I know the market, and I've already recruited players from the market. And if we have the one-time transfer rule, I'll just take four guys from Bryant. Sure. I'll take Hall Elijah and Peter Kiss and, and Michael <laughs> Green and Charles Pride, and I'll have a pretty good team right to start. Uh, you know, and if I just get four or five more guys from the New York area, I don't even need to recruit the kids at St. John's are recruiting. I'll just go into Queens and into Brooklyn, and I'll take the second-tier guys, and, and we'll be just fine. You know, we'll have more Division One players at Fordham than they do now. Yeah. Uh, you know, we'll add these guys to Joel Soriano uh, and, and Cobb, and we'll just say, okay, let's go forward. You know, now we get a six- or seven- or eight-man rotation. Um, you know, we'll be in the middle of the pack in the A-10, and by year three we'll be, you know, in the top four of the A-10. That's how these guys think. Yeah. That's how they're wired. Yeah. You and I look at it and say, he's unbalanced. This, this is completely ridiculous. <laughs> there, there's no way that that's going to happen. There's no way it can happen. But that's the audacity of great coaches, of highly successful people. Uh, you know, they're willing to bet on themselves sometimes in, in what we think is an irrational manner. Um, you know, and more often than not, they are proven right. Uh, by betting on themselves um, you know I, I agree with you and I've said it as much publicly uh, if I was Jared and I was approached by Fordham I would say I'm, I'm very flattered and I thank you but uh, you know I'm going to stay here because my team next year here at Bryant is going to be better than than your team um, you know we're going to have a chance to do some really special things uh, you know, and if, if Bryant decides that they're going to extend me and, and commit to maybe upgrading the Chase Center uh, and make me the best program in the NEC, uh, you know, not just on the floor, but in terms of, of infrastructure uh, and make it a little easier for me to win here, you know, maybe I'll stay here an extra year or two, um, you know, before ultimately I, I take my shot uh, at a Power Five or, or at, you know, a Big East job. Um, you know, something along those lines, an elite mid-major, uh, let's say. Um, you know, but I, I definitely think that, you know, his name is going to be one that you're going to hear, and, and I think that's a good thing. It's a great um, thing. You know, I, I think, you know, I, I always think that Providence 
committed itself to being more of a destination job. They they really committed to spending for Ed Cooley. Uh, they got the practice facility done. Um, prior to that, Providence was a stepping stone job, and and it worked well for both sides. Yeah. When, when you consider, you know, where Rick Pitino was able to move on to, and Pete Gillen was able to move on to, and and Rick Barnes was able to move on to, Providence was the winning program under all those guys. Yep. Um, you know, you look at Rhode Island and you think about. Tom Penders was able to go to Texas, and Al Skinner was able to go to Boston College, uh, and Dan Hurley was able to go to UConn, all able to take better jobs from URI. What was the trade-off? URI was in the NCAA tournament and, and winning. Um, you know, So being, yes, it is difficult to hire year over year over year. It is difficult to find that head coach who is going to sustain and win for you year over year. It, it is difficult. Um, you know, but I think that's where you, you need to focus on your program. Yeah. Uh, you need to make your infrastructure good enough where anyone can win there. Uh, you know, in your conference, relative to your conference, you, you look at VCU, uh, including Mike Rhodes, the last five head coaches at VCU have all gone to the NCAA tournament. That tells you that VCU, whether it was in the Colonial previously or the Atlantic 10 now, is doing something correct from a program standpoint, not from a team standpoint. And so I think I, I look at Bryant and, and I consider who they are now, who they could be in the future, who Jared is now, who he could be in the future. And I think you, you want to try to marry those two things. Bryant is using him right now. He is guiding them right now. It's a mutually beneficial relationship. Um, it's where Jared could go at some point, and it's where he could leave Bryant and where they could establish themselves and go from that point. Um, you know, so I think that's, that's sort of the, the give and take of the coaching carousel, and, and that's sort of way into the ether uh, on the side. It's a great point. Uh, and two things to, to wrap this up. Uh, first off is, if you're Bryant, you know, the, the good news, or if you follow the Bryant program, the good news is Bryant as school not just in athletics, but in a lot of different ways, has grown, has put in the money to grow. Um, and we've seen it with athletic facilities, with that dome that they have, with the new baseball locker room they put in there for their program, which baseball program is a shining star for Bryant. Yeah. Um, with what they've done for the, the weight room. Men's lacrosse. Football, men's lacrosse, like yeah. for the football program, all of those things. So Bryant has not been afraid to invest. And naturally, the next thing you think of you, you put all this money into you know football, baseball, you know lacrosse, men's and women's, softball, all those things. The next thing you look at probably on the list is maybe an upgrade to the Chase Center. And right. that, to me, says if you have a coach like Jared, you want to keep him around, and you want to build, as you said, a program that can sustain past whoever your next head coach is and whatnot, that's the way to do it. Um, the second thing I'll say, too, just thinking about this with, with Jared and his situation, and if Fordham were to come forward and say, we want to hire you, this sort of feels like a situation when the year before Dan Hurley left, mm. he had, his name was being thrown around with Rutgers. Rutgers. Right. That's what this feels like. Because you looked at that and you said, Dan Hurley, the Hurley family, New Jersey, Rutgers. For the second time. Yes. That, to me, was like, okay, it, it, it all makes sense. Just like with Fordham, there's a lot of factors. They all make sense. Right. But Dan, and Dan, I'm sure, had that, that, that mentality that, well, I could go there and do this and bring this guy in and do this and whatnot, and I could win there and do all that. That's who they are. 
but Dan waited. Right. And he stuck with the program where he knew he was going to have success the following year. Knew he had a really good team coming back. Really good. He had a good personal situation here. His wife liked it here. His kids were in school here. It was, it was a very comfortable personal situation for him. And they go back to the NCAA tournament. They have the year that they have. They win the 8-10 regular season title. And then all of a sudden, after the season, UConn comes calling. And Pittsburgh. And, and Pittsburgh. You're right. That's and right. And Pittsburgh. So the offers became better because Dan is a great head coach. I think, I think if Jared waits it out, I think a similar sort of thing could play out with Jared. Now, I'm, I'm not saying UConn and Pitt are coming to call for Jared, but you never know what kind of programs could step forward and, and, and call him. Right. It's, it's different levels. Um, yeah. you know, but you can safely assume that if he's able to make the NCAA tournament this year, and if he's able to run through his schedule next year, returning that roster and, and keeping that roster intact, uh, yes, there would be a better program on his phone uh, than Fordham. Yes. There's no question about it. And so that's why I bring that up. Um, you know, also, if you're going to renovate the Chase Center, you, you should probably do that for Mary Burke as well. Oh, who has oh been totally agree. A oh, fantastic man. coach, the women's program at Bryant, um, you know, guiding them from Division Two to Division One. She's celebrating 30 years. At Good Bryant for her. Year, which is really hard to believe. Um, so well respected. She's got a great staff. I love uh, Coach Parsons. Is he's awesome too. Marcus uh, Riley, of yeah, course. We've just, known for a long time. They're great. Uh, you know, they they yeah. I, I, you're you're completely right, and they're not afraid to invest. That's the thing with Bryant. They're not. No, they. You you make a good point. That campus, I think back to when the Patriots had training camp at that campus, you know, in the 80s and in the 90s. right. You know, eight-year-old me uh, going with my parents and and my brother to Patriots training camp. Um, I almost can't visualize the campus the way it was then compared to the way it is now. It it is so transformed. Uh, Ron Makeley and and Bill Smith have done amazing work there. Um, You know, really planting the flag of, of Bryant as not only a top university, but as an athletics destination. Uh, you know, the, the facility development that, that they've done there, um, you know, the way they've changed the footprint there, uh, you know, the fact that they've kept Jay's Deli in business. Uh, really, <laughs> We've really, helped them out on that. Yeah, yeah, really, really appreciate them for that. Yeah. Um, you know, but in, interesting times for the Bulldogs, uh, interesting times for us. Um, you know, Bryant plays... Uh, Saturday at 7, um, and then Sunday I think they play at 4. Four. Mm-hmm. Um, I would imagine that's for travel purposes. But uh, busy times for all of our teams, uh, those who are playing and those who are not. Um, Cody, I, I thank you for coming in. Anyone who hung in this long, uh, we thank you. We hope that you learned something. Wow. Uh, a little bit here and there. Um, but thank you all very much. Everybody stay healthy, stay safe, enjoy the games.